John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the Queen slash Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, the latest Disney live-action movie The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, the latest from Tyler Perry featuring Tiffany Haddish, Nobody's Fool, both the original 1977 Dario Argento version and the 2018 remake of Suspiria, plus the third movie this year to be rated 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, London Fields. Let's get started. My family. We believe in each other. That's everything. We're going to do great things. It's an experience. Love. Tragedy. Joy is something that people will feel belongs to them. A lot of times you'll definitely see the critical divide, the difference between what you know people who are more familiar with film structure and film criticism look for in a movie versus what audiences look for. And that's kind of got a kind of what what's going to lead into the discussion this episode. A bunch of stuff this weekend is. But for this one, I tend to align myself more with the critics on this one. And, you know, that'll depend on your opinions, you know, for every movie. You know, some people get an enjoy something, you know, enjoy something that the critics don't, or the critics will definitely, you know, there are definitely instances of the critics loving a movie that doesn't appeal to audiences. And sometimes they are in alignment, other times, you know, there's definitely that great divide between the people who are more knowledgeable of the filmmaking process versus people who see film as more entertainment. And this is one of those cases where it's definitely an audience pleaser. That's mo- that's the biggest thing. And, that, and I mean, my, I took my nephew to this, and it's one of his favorite movies of the year. And I can't say I blame him, because, I mean, it's Queen. Like, even a bad movie about Queen is still a movie that has Queen's music and is trying to tell the story of Queen. So, it's definitely going to hit people where they, you know, in that nice pleasure center of their brain. But the more I thought about it, the more I just realized this movie isn't very good. And when you break it down, this is a run of the... I mean, people were making the comparisons to, did the filmmakers not watch Dewey Cox walk hard? And, yeah... Dewey Cox, it hits all the same beats that Dewey Cox, that the Walk Hard movie parodied. Like, that, and that was right after Walk the Line. You know, that was like 2006, 2007 Walk Hard came out. And that was right at the peak of those big uh, musical biopics that were coming out. So, the fact that it's still repeating the same tropes that were parodied in that movie, yeah, that's that's a bad sign. And that's the thing. This movie has a line in it where, I believe it's Roger Deacon, um, the drummer, says, we're not, you know, we don't follow formula. We're queen. We do our own thing. And I think I was going, I think I went into Beatles there for a second. Uh, But point is, Roger Deacon is the one saying, hey, we're queen. Either him or Brian May were saying, hey, we're queen. We do our own thing, man. We're not, we don't, uh, you know, we don't uh, (laughs) align ourselves with your labels, man. We are queen. We're beyond labels. And this movie is strictly by the, paint by numbers. It is directly the same kind of movie you would expect from anybody who's, like, 
Ray and Walk the Line and all of those kinds of biopics all do the same thing. Ironically, the movie that wasn't a true story did a better job telling a, a, a sort of biographical rock star story than the actual movie about actual rock stars. And of course, that's A Star Is Born. Um, Bradley Cooper did a better job telling a story about a, a fictional musician than the writers here did about telling the actual Queen story. And the thing is, the more you know about Queen, the more you realize, oh, this movie's just complete hogwash, just made up. Like, here's the crazy thing. There were worries that they were going to um, straightwash this movie. Uh, they were going to leave out the um, Freddie Mercury's homosexual relationships and the fact that he had AIDS, which thankfully they don't. They just completely botched the timeline. They completely, like, he, um, his relationship with Jim Hutton, uh, the hairdresser, that's completely, that's completely left out of the majority of the movie until the very end. And they make it sound like the Live Aid concert was Queen getting back together because Freddie got AIDS. Man, Freddie got AIDS and stuff. <laughs> and, sorry, I, I, I shouldn't make a joke. I'm not trying to make light of that. It's just, that's all I can, Showgirls has ruined uh, trying to have a serious discussion about AIDS for me. Because that's directly where my head goes to. Um... But, it's, you know, the point is that Freddie Mercury did contract AIDS. It was long after the Live Aid concert, though. Like, he didn't, he didn't openly admit to having contracted AIDS. And the fact that the diagnosis wasn't until later in the 80s. Live Aid was 1985. He didn't spend the next six years with AIDS. He spent closer to, like, three or four years with AIDS. So this movie's timeline is completely out of touch with the actual timeline of Queen. Here's the other thing. They make it sound like Queen broke up. Yeah, Freddie Mercury did solo projects, but the band never broke up. They just made the band break up in the movie because that's more that adds more dramatic tension. And they make it sound like, oh, Freddie, Mer Freddie Mercury's solo stuff, it's all garbage. It's all, you know, an ego trip. But even Queen performed some of Freddie's, like, some of Freddie's solo hits actually did top the Billboard charts when they came out. And, the, and Queen would perform some of them when they went on tour. They weren't bad songs. But they made it sound like, oh, Freddie Mercury going solo. It's all garbage, man. It's all a, it's all a money grip. No, some, Freddie Mercury wanted to do a solo project. He did a couple of solo albums. They're actually pretty good by all measures. So the fact that they're trying to make it sound like, it, they make it sound like the whole bit in Walk Hard where Dewey Cox is like, and I want an army of didgeridoos. 50,000 didgeridoos. And they make it sound like Freddie Mercury got the worst like, never played it. He just grabbed people off the street to play instruments. Because they were Brian May and Roger Deacon. And the bassist. I completely forget his name. Uh, sadly, they never really emphasized the bassist either. Um, but, yeah. it's They make it sound like, oh, Freddie Mercury couldn't have done... Freddie Mercury could have easily gone solo. Without a problem. It's not like he hired terrible musicians. He made perfectly good music as a solo artist. But the thing was, he never broke up. Queen. Queen never did break up. They were still making music at the time. Freddie just did a couple of solo albums in between. You know? It's like, what the hell? Like, you have to be beholden to the formula so much that you completely neglect the actual facts of Queen's history? And that's the thing. Brian May and I believe Roger Deacon were both producers on this movie. 
And they wanted this movie to be about the band more than just Freddie, which was one of the reasons that Sasha Baron Cohen uh, stopped working on the project before, because they wanted it to be sort of like half of the Queen story after Freddie died and then half with Freddie. And that wasn't going to work. And this, this compromises to be during Freddie's lifetime, but with a more emphasis on the band. And that's good, but it's not telling a unique story, which is completely in you know, in contraction with the actual band Queen, which was always experimental, always trying new things, always being itself unique. And this is completely by the numbers, which is kind of sad that the movie about the band that would try anything and was outside the box was is completely within the box. In fact, it fits so neatly within the box, it's like it was custom measured for the box. So, and that's not to say that the movie's bad, it's just... It's, it's just, if it weren't for the performances, which Robbie Malik does a decent job of this Freddie Mercury, although look, apparently they completely re-written, re, because by most accounts, Freddie Mercury was kind of um, introverted, not solely introverted, but more withdrawn, more, you know, not as flamboyant. Here, he's just a flaming gay stereotype for the most part. It's like, darling, this, he, he's, he's like rarity from My Little Pony, <laughs> and... I don't. I mean, he was a flamboyant performer, but I don't think he was that flamboyant in real life. Uh, if people know more, you know, people who are more familiar with Queen have kind of brought this up. And apparently, the movie decided, well, Freddie's gay, so we have to gay it up because Freddie's a gay icon. So may, the gayer, the better. And it's like that's kind of in direct contrast to Freddie, who Freddie Mercury was. You know, like don't misrepresent Freddie Mercury because you want to make the movie gayer. Just, you know, have, like, that's the thing. Have him have that, fr like, the other thing is they make it sound like, um, they have to have a, hi, kitty. Uh, they have to have a villain in the movie because apparently they, the band can't just, be, you know, be, tell its actual story, you know? They can't just tell the actual story of the band. They have to be like, no, here's this evil, like, assistant character that's trying to separate Freddy and keep him all to himself and he's evil and he's a gay lover and he's awful and he's tearing everything apart and he's ruining Freddy's life. He's so toxic and it's like, none of that happened. Like, most of that probably never happened. Like, the dude was probably a, an asshole and he did out Freddy in a tabloid magazine interview but the dude, like, the dude didn't completely, he, he didn't Yoko the band he didn't do anything like that. He didn't ruin Freddie's relationship with his with his uh, original wife. Um, I don't know if they stayed married. Actually, I don't even know if they married or not. They make it sound like they got married, and then they they but then they remained lifelong friends. I know they were lifelong friends. I mean, this is the um, I forget her name, but this is the woman who he wrote whom he wrote. Um, uh, you're my best friend. I think you're my best friend, but definitely uh, love of my life. He wrote that about this woman featured. And it's, it's like the performances aren't bad. This movie's all of these movies' problems are from the writing, and the writers are so like lazily just copying the the formula to a T without doing anything unique with it. And if it were for the fact that it's trying to do, do you know, it's trying to essentially be an origin story for Queen music, there'd be no reason to see this movie at all. I mean, the end of the movie is just the Live Aid concert recreated uh, using the actors and. Like, we didn't necessarily need that. That's kind of lazy, if you think about it. So, I mean, this isn't a... Once again, this isn't a bad movie. 
it just didn't really try that hard, which is anathema to Queen as a band. And it feels like if you were going to tell the story of Queen, be more like Queen. And the people who were making this just weren't like Queen at all. They were just playing it safe. And hey, it's probably going to work out for them. We'll see when the box, in the box office report. So, you know, it didn't matter to the people watching it. They got what they wanted. And the producers got what they wanted. It doesn't matter if the movie's good. It just matters if it makes money. Yeah. Story of Hollywood, isn't it? Doesn't matter if it's good. It matters if it makes us money. Ugh. Ready. She's gathering her forces. You're the only one who can stop her. I've been expecting you. <laughs> it's time. I think no one will argue with me when I say that under Bob Iger, Disney has become the most creatively bankrupt that it's ever been in its existence. Now, obviously, the Disney as a company is morally bankrupt. That much has been, you know, certain since the days of, like, uh, uh, Bob, what was it, Eisner? Um, uh, yeah, whoever the, not Will Eisner, that's, uh, the, that's the comic book artist, uh, but yeah, the Eisner era in the 80s and whatnot, like, but the 80s were bad for everybody. That was... Oof, there was no morality in the 80s, it turns out. Oof, oof. Anyway, um, yeah, but under, that's the thing. Even under Eisner, there was a lot of really, you know, good creativity kind of going on underneath. That's where you saw a lot of different, you know, not, not necessarily experimental stuff, but definitely like a lot of creative energy was coming about, you know, that was the, you know, that was about the time, that was the time that brought us the Disney afternoon and saw an expansion and like, with like the Disney channel and some of the creativity that went into that. It's not, the, it was not the most creative it's ever been. I feel like well, under Walt is the most creative Disney has ever been, but at the same time, like under Eisner, there was a sort of revitalization and energy to it that kind of brought Disney back, you know, creatively speaking. And sadly under Iger, the animation department is doing good for the most part. Like, you know, Wreck-It Ralph, Frozen, Moana, Zootopia, all phenomenal movies. And yet, most of the other stuff, Dis you know, most of the other good stuff Disney does is not under the Disney banner. Like, besides some of the, besides the animation department, what really good things has Disney done? I mean, unfortunately, the only thing Bob Iger has kind of brought to the table is... Remake all of the classic animated movies in live action and not as good. Like the only one that actually, the only two that actually made any improvements on the original were John Favreau's Jungle Book and um, uh, I forget who the guy who did it, but the Pete's Dragon remake was better than the original. Uh, Cinderella added more stuff, but it wasn't that, it still wasn't that good of a movie. And then <laughs> the Beauty and the Beast movie, that was just a train wreck in retrospect. And, yeah, Iger is just, he does not, he is, he's completely sapped whatever creative energy there is in the Disney company in order to focus on really bad 
live action remakes that will only get people in because of brand name recognition and you know perpetuating you know all the usual corporate stereotypes you know like whatever creative energy is coming out of Disney it's not coming through Iger he is not like Eisner he was he was probably you know morally bankrupt as well i i can't say for sure i know the disney wars book goes into more detail on that but at least under eisner you saw new creativity he he, you know, he emphasized that aspect of Dis- of disney and he brought in all kinds of new intellectual ideas and it brought about you know, the whole disney renaissance through him partially and under Iger, disney has gone from the renaissance from the tail end of the renaissance to just complete stagnation. This is probably the worst it's been, creative, creatively speaking, outside of the animation department since the Dark Ages. Like, we're talking, like, since the 70s, post-Walt years. And I think nothing exemplifies that more than their latest outing, The Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Now, I don't know how many people are familiar with the original story that this is based on. Published in 1810, so this is 200 years old. And most specifically known due to the ballet that was composed by Tchaikovsky. And that's kind of how the people became, were more familiar with this storyline. And people who are familiar with the ballet kind of understand the story. The idea of Clara is caught in between this war between Nutcrackers and, and the Mouse King. And there are these multiple realms that she gets to visit that are based upon, like, sweets and, you know, fairies and magic. And so that all came from, like, a rewrite of the book from the 1810 version. The original version was just Clara, well, Marie, technically. Uh, Clara didn't come into the revision of the story. So this girl named Marie uh, was feeling sick in her bed and she imagined her toys were alive and there was a war between her toy soldiers and the toy soldiers and uh, the mice, the rats that lived in her house under the and then a uh, sort of remake, you know, a, re, a, a rewrite, a new version of the story added in the more magical elements that we know of uh, through the ballet. And since it's public domain, so many people have taken their stab, and even Disney once took a stab at the, at, uh, the Nutcracker storyline. Like, I think there was even, like, a Mickey Mouse version of the Nutcracker told before. So, this isn't new ground. And so, for the live, this new live-action interpretation of the storyline, all we've got is Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. This is literally Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Beat for beat, it pretty much follows Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. It is that lazy. And I. This apparently has Joe Johnston, uh, director of uh, Captain America First Avenger, The Rocketeer. Um, you know, he's a very fancy. You know, he's a very good campy director when he gets, when he, when he gets a chance to do it. And then it's got the director of. I forget his name. Uh, um, but the director of Chocolat um, was. They kind of. One started it, the other finished the project. So between the two of them, we managed to get basically Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, but not as good. And that's saying something. At least Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland was decisively bad. This isn't even, like, good enough to be bad. 
You know, it's not trying hard enough to be bad. It's so lazily put together and predictable that you might as well not have even tried. Like, the premise here is Clara, after the death of her mother Marie, which, once again, they're ties back into the storylines that this is based on. So Marie was from the first book, Clara was from the rewrite of it, so they're tying those two in together. Basically, Clara becomes one of the uh, daughters of Eve from Chronicles of Narnia, and the actress Mackenzie Foy is basically on par with Mia Wasikowska in Alice in Wonderland. Like, we're talking that bad of an acting job. And... So, Clara ends up going into this magical kingdom uh, where the four realms are, are, are threatened because one of the realms has been conquered or taken over by Ma- Mother Ginger, played by Helen Mirren. And it's up to Clara to find a way to stop her. And I think from the get-go, you can see exactly where they're going with the story. Like, I immediately figured out what the plan was because it's that blatantly obvious like the only people who would wouldn't be ob the twist isn't obvious for to is children who have never seen a movie before that is literally the only people who the twist isn't seen coming from a mile away and that would be one thing if it was just a lazily written at least it could get away with being an effects based movie but even that is its effects are cheap and almost unfinished like i swear these effects were meant to this movie was meant to come out next christmas but disney decided they wanted mulan to come out that christmas and so they pushed nutcracker ahead before they had finished rendering that's how bad the cgi looks in this movie the rats the mice in this movie look like they came out of a really bad like mockbuster cgi like we're talking like 10 million dollar budget cgi in this movie and this is from disney this is this is supposed to be a big budget extravaganza and it looks terrible so i mean not only are we do we have a un you know an original store attempt at retelling a story like disney had just done this almost a decade like alice in wonderland was almost a decade ago but it's still fresh enough in our memories that we know we've seen this before. So the fact that you're doing it again this soon, it just screams that, oh, we have nothing better to do. So we'll remake Alice in Wonderland again, but this time with Nutcracker. And so the <laughs> So not only do we have bad CGI, bad performance, like even the like even the good actors, like Eugenio Derbez, I think, is one of the uh, sort of regions of the realms. And he's barely in it's enough to be recognizable. Helen Mirren as Mother Ginger is phoning it in more than she even did in uh, that Winchester movie from earlier this year. And then the only person of note in this entire movie is Keir Knightley as basically the Sugar Plum Fairy. And she's only, you know, stands out because she's attempting to go camp and not being very good at it. So even Keira Knightley can't can't make this movie enjoyable, even when she's trying to go full on camp. <laughs> uh, yeah, just at the top of everything, not only is the CGI bad, the makeup itself is bad. Like they try to make Mother Ginger look like she was cracked and like she's a porcelain doll that's breaking, and you can see the makeup. 
Like, you literally see... It's like stage makeup. Like, they didn't even bother trying to make it look like she was a breaking doll. They could not care less about this making a good movie in this. And then they just pad it out with references to the ballet. And then the end credits, that just throws in uh, some guy doing hip-hop dance moves. Like, he's popping and locking during the end credits. It's... It is the... It is the most mind-boggling attempt at from Disney to keep this whole big budget live action remake thing going. This is barely this isn't even remaking anything Disney made before, but it's tying back into Fantasia and Disney and Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. And even they're like the whole bit where she comes into this fantasy realm is almost pretty much lifted straight from their Chronicles of Narnia adaptation. So literally nothing in this movie is original and it's also poorly done. This is probably the worst made movie Disney has done from for their big budget movies ever. Like in the in the last twenty years, I don't think we've ever seen this cheaply cheap looking of a Disney big budget movie. It is baffling that this existed. That this is this, this exists. That they decided yes, put the Disney name on this movie. Oy vey, like. Wow. How did this is how did this get made worthy of just bafflingly bad? Like every step of the way you're wondering why did anybody bother? So yeah. Uh, I don't know if Bob I under Bob Iger is gonna get any better for the live action Disney. I know that the Aladdin trailer put, uh, played before this, and I'm not all that excited. I need to see more. And what I'm seeing isn't all that inspiring. Personally, I would just rather Disney try to do other stories. Don't remake the old stuff. There are plenty of adaptations you haven't done before. Try new things. That's all. We gonna need a saw, some plastic, burner phone. I gotta go to the bathroom. That's good. You need to go ahead and let all the liquids out because you don't want to leave no DNA. You're not helping. Every time you try to kill a man, you gonna squirt a little pee. I know that for sure. Mama, it's Tanya. Who? It's Tanya. Oh, no. Tanya no here. Mama, I know it's you. This connection is so rickety. Hello? What? Mama, you in the window. I'm sorry, what? We not on no cell phone, Mama. I, I can't hear you, baby. I can't hear Oh, my. Mama. I'm going to say it. I honestly did not expect the Tyler Perry movie to be one of the best ones I saw this weekend. That... I, if you told me that the, the, that the weekend, uh, the Queen movie and a Dis and a Disney big budget movie and a Tyler Perry movie all came out, that the Tyler Perry movie would be the one I liked out of the three of them, I would have called you a filthy liar because Tyler Perry can't make good movies, and his track record is still pretty spotty. I mean, especially with, with within the time span that I've been watching, I feel like people kind of de facto admit that his best was Diary of a Mad Black Woman. But from what I've seen, the only things I've seen from him are trash like Acrimony and um, Temptation Diary, Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, the Medea Halloween movies. And uh, I, before I started reviewing movies, I did see Daddy's Little Girls, which is basically a, you know, a black soap opera and a, in the form of a movie. 
And that's kind of been Tyler Perry's whole deal is that he's a he's essentially a soap opera maker more than anything else. He's not he's not making quality films for the most part. When he tries to do drama, he has, he ends up making a soap opera. And when he tries to do comedy, he makes unfunny, tired, drawn out comedy. And so leave it to and I think he um, managed to make up for his lack of um, you know real raw talent by bringing in a few pinch hitters. Uh, in the form of Tiffany Haddish, and um, and yeah, mainly in the form of Tiffany Haddish, she's the one who carries this movie. And uh, the premise here, uh, based on the trailer, is that um, Tiffany Haddish, um, her sister Tika Sumter, is a high, you know, high-ranking uh, executive uh, in this ad firm uh, run by Missy Pyle of all people, and. Uh, Tiki Sumter is tasked with uh, this ad campaign that'll put her on the track to becoming the first ever black, um, especially black, I think black female specifically, uh, VP in the company. And while that's going on, her sister, played by Tiffany Haddish, gets released from prison and has to live with her. And it's, it's also revealed that she is me supposedly dating quote unquote a guy she met online named Charlie and um it's because and when her when her sister does some real digging going so far as to involve the catfish you know the people behind catfish she uh realize she thinks that her sister's being catfished by some guy because it has all the signs of that and then it's a matter of kind of you know making her sister overcome the embarrassment of being had and find, finding love outside of her normal brain. Because that's the other thing. This movie is... Without Tiffany Haddish, this movie is is another Tyler Perry movie. This is, by the numbers, Tyler Perry. <laughs> well, a lot of the movies this weekend are by the numbers, you know? Um, yeah, it's the strong black female lead and the troubled black uh, character who's... But he's nice... So they're the ones gonna. They're the ones who are gonna eventually end up together, and it follows the same plot lines. Like, oh, it, it, oh, or will you know the whole will they won't they thing? Like, oh, she she doesn't think he's right for him, and then oh, oh, but he still loves her. But then oh, she says the wrong thing, and then oh, he's mad at her, and oh, oh, and then oh, but then turns out this thing happened, and it's like, wow, like this is not good writing, like. Ostensibly, this is really bad writing because it's Tyler Perry writing and he is not a good storyteller. And so what makes up for that is, number one, the, a- the other actors, too, are re- are good. Tika Sumter uh, is great as the straight woman to Tiffany Haddish. And even when she's on her own with, um, uh, let me look up the one guy's name because there's, uh, Makai Brooks uh, plays, one, plays a love interest for her. And then there's a... Then there's her main love interest who runs the coffee shop by her job that gives her co- coffee every morning. Um, and that's kind of the, will, that's where the will they won't they part comes in. And let me see, what's his name? Uh, Omari Hardwick. Uh, he's best known for Sergeant Marcus Williams in Kick-Ass. I think he's the police chief there. Uh, Power, he's ghost on Power. Uh being Mary Jane, whatever that is. Uh, but yeah, he's ma- mainly known now for power. 
uh, a TV show on Stars, and he is um, he's basically you know the guy with a tr- with a checkered past, but he really loves that he's really you know he he is essentially perfect except uh, um, Tika Sumter has these really stupid like criteria of her ideal man despite apparently never really dating all that much like these are criteria that you make when you're like 13 and you've never dated a person before (laughs) and it feels like you know as a woman who is probably in her 30s and about to become the vp of an ad agency that she would you know have a better idea of how dating works but she apparently has the mindset of a 13 year old still but, you know, once again, Tyler Perry writing. You have to accept that. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Mackay Brooks is good in this. Uh, there's a, there's even a guest uh, um, a guest appearance by... There's a cameo by another famous comedian that I don't want to give away. But when he shows up, it's hilarious. And he gets to act off of Tiffany Haddish. And it's like, it's like magic. Like, everything... When Tiffany Haddish gets to be with Whoopi Goldberg, it's great. When she gets to be with those other comedians, it's great. And then when she's and then even then when she's the she's kind of stealing the scenes from everybody, she's just phenomenal. I this. I mean, essentially, Tiffany Haddish is playing up to the kind of stereotypes she's known for now—the sort of ratchet chick uh, who's who who's kind of. Um, yeah, you know, not like I mean they even show you in the trailer like oh she she's amazed by the the glittery rug and um you know and like oh the bed's so nice and like and you know she's horn and she's horny for for the for the coffee shop owner too like what what should I put down for sex plenty yeah like almost like the waza from the Budweiser commercial so I mean like yeah. Yeah, this, she's not. She's a bit. She's just basically doing her a lot of her normal sort of uh, st- comedic style, but ramped up to eleven. At the same time, like I didn't mind because it's Tiffany Haddish, and she has such great comedic timing that she's able to de- deliver these amazing one-liners. Just like bam, bam, bam. There's stuff from the trailer that couldn't even make it into the final cut, just because there's so much like bam, 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 like almost linearama coming from her but it's not it doesn't feel tired and and lazy like a lot of the Judd Apatow uh Linerama does it's more like eh, Tiffany, Tiffany Haddish is on a roll just just keep going just keep going like there are even points where I swear that the other actors in the scene are trying not to crack up at Tiffany Haddish uh going off knowing she's on a roll uh it, it's not it's not great filmmaking I'll admit that by if this was anybody else it would still be you know, a middling movie, and it would still be because it's still really poorly written. The fact that a Tyler Perry movie genuinely made me laugh out loud is amazing, and I solely credit that to Tiffany Haddish because that's who was giving me most of the laughs. And then when it wasn't her, it was kind of the standard Tyler Perry movie, but it was slightly better. Just once again, a cat, a good cast can save a bad script. For the you know, they can't make it a good script. But they can make it a watchable movie from a bad script. And here, like Makai Brooks, when he shows up, he's he has this one scene where it it is it is like every girl's sort of like, yep, I had one of those before. Been there, girl. You know, been there, girl. Yep. And uh, Missy Powell's a bit 
underutilized. I mean, she's kind of, uh, I mean, she's not in the movie enough to be of note. And Whoopi Goldberg, but Whoopi, you know, whereas Whoopi Goldberg isn't in the movie a lot, but when she is, she's, she's, she, like the scene with her and Tiffany Haddish talking to each other through the window, that's pretty much line for line in the movie. And it's still, it's still making me laugh, you know? Um, plus like Tika Sumter is just drop dead gorgeous. Um, I'm not as familiar with her, uh, work. Apparently she's going to be, um, the lead in Southside with you, which, so I can't wait for that. Uh, she was a love interest in the Ride Along series. Apparently she's going to be in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie next year. Oof. Oof, girl. Oof, the things you have to do. Um, oh no, wait. No, I'm thinking of, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. No, she was Michelle Obama, um, in Southside with you. So, yeah, she was, well, technically Michelle Robinson, because it was before they got married. But, yeah, um, oh, she was also in a Medea Christmas, so she's worked with Tyler Perry before. Um, Think Like a Man. So, I mean, she is, um, so she's been in a lot of, you know, ver- you know varying stuff. Gossip Girl, The Game, um, The Haves and Have Nots for Tyler Perry, so she's on that as well. Final Space, which I'm not familiar with. I think that's, uh... Oh, that's, isn't that that TBS uh, animated movie series? Yeah, so she's in that. Um, Old Man and the Gun she's in. So she is, she's you know, she's getting some good roles now. She's starting to get more and more now after she started off in daytime soaps and doing, uh, you know, trashy TV like that, like Gossip Girl. And and, um, and she's good in this. She She's able to be both the straight woman when it calls for it, but also like there's a bit towards the end where she kind of lets herself be awkward and dorky and goofy and it works too. And of course she just, she really is a beautiful woman and the movie opens with her dancing in her, uh, in her underwear and, you know, night and, and a, a little nighty, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> to, um, Janet Jackson. So I mean like, yeah, Tyler Perry gets exact, you know, gets the appeal of Tika, but at the same time, it doesn't always ogle her, but she, all you know, but she's always looking good in the movie too. So, I'm I'm interested to see what else she does. I really hope she she doesn't screw herself over by being in that Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Oof, I doesn't even list who she's gonna be in it either. So we'll see. But in this, she actually manages to you know hold up you know hold her own against uh, alongside um Tiffany Haddish for the most part. So. I would watch this again if given the you know if it was on like TV or something, but yeah, it's I, I it's it was one of the first Tyler watchable Tyler Perry movies I had seen in a long while, you know. So hey, you know, a broken clock can be is right at least twice a day. So at some point, Tyler Perry was going to make a movie I enjoyed, and it just so happened he did that by bringing in a woman, bringing in a comedian and a woman who I absolutely adore. So, Tiffany Haddish actually helped make help Tyler Perry make a good movie. You know? <laughs> it is what it is. You're making some kind of deal with them. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. All a mess. The one out there. The one in here. 
This was another one that didn't open as wide as I thought it would, so I actually had to go way out of town. I had to go closer up into Cleveland in order to see it, which is a shame because it, I would have preferred seeing this in theaters than having them hold on to Hunter Killer or Smallfoot. Like, those movies are, are kind of over with, aren't they? You can bring in Suspiria for a change, but... It is, but whatever. Um, I guess they weren't ready. I didn't. I guess they saved it for more of the art house fair, which makes sense. It's a bit longer. It's a bit. It is very art housey. But in order to talk about the new one, let's first talk about the Dario Argento original, 1977's Suspiria. In that one, an American girl goes to Berlin to join a an a, a prestigious um, ballet academy, and on her way in. She it, she run she um, sees a woman run out of run out of the studio, uh, and that woman kind of reveals that something is going on there, and that's where we see the most iconic scene in the movie, and one of the most iconic scenes in all of horror, uh, Patricia's death scene, where she gets stabbed by somebody through the window, uh, and then is hung uh, by being dropped down through a, a sort of almost stained glass window uh, at the top of a of this apartment complex where she is staying. And it's almost like neon-like colors, and it's so visually stimulating as we see this woman who has already been stabbed be hung to her death. And that's kind of, it kind of, it kind of peaks there, because after that it's more like, yeah, you'll get some some stabbing and the blood is all like almost day glow, sort of unnaturally colored. It's almost like um, paint more than blood. And we get, and that's where we kind of, uh, the story gets, starts to be revealed that the, the Ballet Academy, it was built um, coinciding with a witch. And it's believed that the ballet is run by witches. And it's up to this American girl, Susie, to investigate what's really going on and and find out what the deal is with this academy. And it leads into her in a like final clash with the head witch of the of, of this coven. And it's I think this, this is my first real taste of Jalo. Um, for those who don't know, Jalo is the uh, Italian sort of horror style that Argento was one of the progenitors of and the, definitely the most famous um, director to come out of it. But it's very stylistically driven. It's very colorful. It's very uh, bloody and gory. And it's a lot of really interesting stylistic choices. I will say that um, compared, I, this isn't my first Argento movie. The first one I saw was his Fan of the Opera uh, adaptation, which if you want to hear my thoughts on that, you can check out our uh, currently on hiatus podcast, Phantom of the Podcast that I did with our uh, founder, um, Vanessa Van Alstein, where we talked about where she punished me, literally punished me and our dear co-host um, for me saying that the 2004 Joel Schumacher uh um, adaptation was not that bad. I still find the Schumacher version to be campy, fun, but it's definitely not good. The Argento fan of the opera is a mind freak. It is bananas. So if you want to hear us talk about that, go check out the archives for fan of the podcast. 
So that was my first taste of Argento. Here I'm watching Argento in his prime, and it's very style over substance. And a lot of people bring that up as sort of a detracting, you know, a detraction of somebody. You know, they're all style, no substance. Here, I get the appeal. It's not that Argento's a bad filmmaker. He's clearly not. He's very, he, he knows how to use color. And, you know, he, he has great sort of eye, an eye for film. As, an, as sort of like a visual art medium. But his storytelling is, you know, very basic. The storyline here, you know, when it's, the, when it's the death scenes, when it's the gore, it is beautiful to watch. When he's trying to tell a story, when he's writing dialogue, he's not very... I mean, part of it could easily be his English as a second language. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how uh, much of a handle he has on the English language at being an Italian director. Um, but yeah, it, it did not, it, it, I think just the base, the storytelling is not very good. It's very B movie, which I think is kind of the point. Jalo is not a level in filmmaking. It's very B level. It's very much a B movie. And I think if that's your style, you know, you, it's no wonder that you would love, you know, then you would probably love this movie. And it's no wonder that there are people out there who do love this movie. I'm just not one of them. I just, you know, I, I just know that, you know, even though you're, you're, you're making a B movie, you could still have some really good writing in it. And this movie just didn't, you know, keep my interest. Yeah, If it was just the visual stuff, the murders and the deaths and the, that sort of thing, that'd be one thing, but that's not, there's not enough of that, especially after it peaked early on with the death scene of Patricia. That death scene, it never really tops that, so it, he kind of blows his wad early on, and the rest of the movie just can't hold up to that. So, the 1977 Suspiria, it's good, but it's just not my thing, man. Meanwhile, the remake is by... Um, Guadagnino, I believe Guadagnino, Guadagnino, uh, G-U-A-D-G-N-I, no wait, hold on, let me pull up, he was the, basically the guy who directed, uh, Call Me By Your Name a couple years ago, and, yeah, G-U-A-D-A-G-N-I-N-O, I believe Guadagnino, Guadagnino, uh, my Italian is not the best. Uh, but yeah, he, he's directing it with a script by, actually, an Ohio guy. I, I didn't realize. Uh, David Kaiganich. Kaiganich? K-A-J-G-A-N-I-C-H. He's from Lorraine, Ohio. <laughs> um, and he's best known for writing uh, True Story, which was the, I believe, James Franco... Um, Jonah, yeah, Jonah Hill sort of, uh, uh, he wrote that along with the director, Rupert Gould, uh, which was basically about a New York Times reporter meeting the accused killer in prison. And, um, it's basically like Franco and Hill kind of acting off of each other. And it's sort of like thriller mystery drama between the two, between the journalist and the, and the killer. Uh, he helped write on the terror for AMC, and he his last movie was, um, actually his not his last movie, yeah, his last movie because he's been writing on the terror for right for the most part now, 
But his last movie was with also with Guadagnino called A Bigger Splash, which also features Tilda Swinton and and uh, Dakota Johnson. So this is like a nice reunion for the whole lot of them. Uh, that one was a vacation of a famous rock star and her boyfriend in Italy is disrupted by the unexpected visit of an old friend and his daughter. It has some kind of like weird drama, uh, like love triangle stuff going on. And I have no idea if it's any good. I never saw it. Uh, that was right before I started the podcast. And I don't even know if it played near me. But apparently um, Kaganovich is going to be writing the Pet Cemetery remake uh, adaptation that they're doing next year. From um, Kevin Kirsch and Dennis Widmeyer. Um, so, that I mean, hey, the, dude got, the dude, dude's a good writer, so I trust him to write the screenplay. I have no idea about the directors, so we'll see. Um, at any rate, this movie is... I think it's good. I think it actually imp- makes a lot of improvements from the original. Um for one thing, the original is very basic. Like, we don't know... It's not a good at character development. Here, we get a lot more backstory. We learn more about Patricia and, you know, why... More of the reason why she fled the school besides, uh, you know, the whole witch thing. Like, we get more of a backstory into who she was. And it's almost like a cover story of, uh, of sorts uh, for why she ran away. And... We get more backstory on Susie. We know she's more of a character in this. Uh, this time around, she's doesn't say where, but she is from Ohio. Um, and she's actually from a Mennonite family. And she uh, escapes, not escapes, but she leaves the Mennonite family while her mother is on her deathbed. And I don't know if they, they don't really specify whether she left while her mother was sick or if her mother got sick after she left. But she leaves to pursue dance at this academy, and, which is run by Tilda Swinton. And it's revealed very early on that it is, in fact, a witch coven. And the focus is instead not on, ooh, is it really a witch coven? But more so the almost political machinations of this witch coven. It's re- it's, that seems to be more of the focus on the writing style here is just the chess, you know, the chess game being played by these witches vying for who controls the coven and you know and then you know grooming Dakota Johnson Susie uh, for some role in the coven and it, while that's going on so Susie instead of the, being the one investigating um, the investigating the the coven and investigating the witches Though the one doing that is actually Sarah, played by Mia Goth, who you might recognize from A Cure for Wellness, if you saw that. Or she was also in Nymphomaniac and Everest. Um, something called Secret of Marrowbone. She's she's more of an independent. She's more of an indie actress for right now. She hasn't really broken into the mainstream so far, but um, she also has an interesting. Like, facial structure. Um, I'm not sh- quite sure how best to... D- like, she looks like... I swear she looks like somebody else with that kind of... Almost like a young Sissy Spacek is, is the best way I can think to describe her appearance. Which isn't a bad thing either, but it's just a unique look to her. At any rate, um, her character Sarah, who was the best friend in the last movie as well, that uh, kind of showed um, Susie the, Ro- the Ropes and became involved in the investigation. She's the one leading... 
what you know the investigation into this coven and into what's going really going on um and then the only actor I remember from the original Udo Kier, his character is here being played by let me see where is uh those are the agents where's the oh my god that was Tilda Swinton Tilda Swinton put on put on makeup and played the German psychologist. I did not realize that. I'm not shocked. Tilda Swinton is very much into kind of going drag, essentially, and playing male characters. She's very open to the idea of, you know, undergoing makeup and playing unique and interesting characters. I've always loved that about her. Although she got herself into some trouble by, you know, talking, commenting on, you know, the idea of casting gay actors as gay characters or trans actors as trans characters. And I'm like, look, I get what your point is, but like her point was you shouldn't limit it. But how about we focus on making the playing field even first? We'll make the playing field even. When that's the case, then we could talk about meritocracy. Once the playing field is even, then we can worry about who's best fit for the role. And we should, I'm just saying, we'll focus on representation now. We can worry about some sort of meritocracy thing after the fact. Because, let's face it, acting and casting, casting agencies aren't a meritocracy. It's very much a deal-based system. And, you know, financial calculations. At any rate, she is, she's the one playing the Udo Kier sort of character of the German psychologist who reveals... The sort, the sort of mindset of the of the witches and the backstory of of the of the coven and the dance hall and and the academy and whatnot, and yeah, uh, Swinton is amazing in this movie. Both as I didn't realize it was her as the doctor as well, but um, I I I immediately thought it was a guy. I thought, oh, God, who is this guy? And turns out it's not a guy. It's literally Tilda Swinton. <laughs> but yeah, it. Uh, Till Swinton is amazing in this. Um, and then uh, my girl Chloe, Grace Moretz, she plays Patricia, but she's barely in the movie, sadly. And when she, but, but when she's in, she's like her, op- she's in the opening, like Patricia in the first movie. But she does a lot, she's way more interesting. Like she's ta- speaking in, she's going in between German and English, and she seems to be go- suffering from some sort of mental breakdown. And it's really interesting, but sadly she's not in the movie enough to really flesh out that character. But it's, you know, she, she's an, you know, she's an, you know, she's not, you know, solely in the opening like Patricia in the last movie. I'll just leave it at that. Um, there's definitely a mystery as to what happened to her. I'll say that. And, um, you know what? I don't, I can't say how good of an actress Dakota Johnson is yet, but I will say she is, she's way better when she's given the material. I think she she's already making improvements uh, from being being instead of being typecast as the chick from Fifty Shades, she's overcoming what uh, Kristen Stewart and uh, Robert Pattinson were not able to. Sadly, which is yeah, it was in this really trashy teen you know teen story. Although hers was not was not so much a teen as a you know pent up housefrau sort of story. <laughs> but yeah, she is able to overcome being in this really terrible franchise. By being in some really solid indie work, which is kind of the best way to go about it. But at least her indie work is being seen, whereas Pattinson and Stewart's 
like, I don't know how many people, speaking of Chloe Grace Moretz, saw uh, The Clouds of Saint-Marie, Saint-Marie, Saint-Marie. That was the one with uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, Kristen Stewart, and um, who was the other one in that? Clouds of Saint-Marie, which is an interesting premise. I have no idea if it's in uh, Juliette Binoche. Um, yeah, I don't know how many people saw that. Kristen Stewart was the sort of, was Julia Pinocchio's assistant in that. Uh, she was in that, uh, Camp X-Ray sort of mo- thing, sort of movie where she was a soldier assigned to Guantanamo Bay. So she tried to go serious, but nobody could take her seriously after Twilight, sadly. And meanwhile, even, and that's the thing, even though Chloe Grace has been in some really trashy movies as well, like, uh, The Fifth Wave... If I stay, I hear bad things about it. I never got the chance to see it. Um, she was, you know, she was a neighbor's two of all things. Something called I Love You, Daddy? No idea where that is. Dark, uh, not Dark Places. What was the other one? Um, uh, what was it? Dark Shadows. Movie 43. So, I mean, yeah. Chloe Grace Morris has been in some crap. But apparently she's also going to be voicing Wednesday Adams, which is honestly perfect. Like, I could, like... Oh, you know who uh, Mia Goth kind of looks like? Christina Ricci. That totally Christina Ricci. She is this generation's Christina Ricci. Um, yeah, so Chloe Grace Moretz. She's also apparently going to be in that really uh, bad Red Shoes and the Seven Dwarves Korean animated Snow White movie. God, it looks so bad. Um, but she's going to, you know, she's going to voice Wednesday Addams. She's in, so she she's able to go about, you know, between like... You know, you know, indie drama to mainstream sort of uh, blockbustery stuff. I li- I really like Chloe Grace Moretz. I think she is going to be one of the defining actresses of our generation. She's great on Thirty Rock too. She was amazing on that. Um, yeah. So, so I'll, a plus um, with this movie, they switched it from ballet to modern dance, so it's a little bit more interesting and. You know, because it's whereas ballet is very much a um, you know a very rigid sort of style. Like there's only so much you can showcase with ballet as a dance form, as a dance art form. But uh, modern by switching it to more modern dance, they're able to incorporate so much more interesting movements. So, and like they, whereas I don't think the original Suspiria ever had a performance. This movie does feature a performance by the dancers and performing this um, very lauded sort of performance piece called Folk, uh, V-O-L-K, um, that Fran- uh, uh, France... I, why am I saying France? But um, um, Tilda Swinton's character, Madame Blanc, uh, wrote in the wake of... That's the other thing, too. This movie, while both movies are set in Berlin in the 70s, this movie actually gives you more of a comprehensive setting for the movie. It ha- features the actual 1977 hijacking of Lufthansa um, night of 181, I believe. Uh, I think that's what, Lufthansa Flight 181, which was hijacked by German terrorists uh, working for uh, the Palestine. Uh, the Palestine, uh, Palestinian Liberation Front, essentially, they were they hijacked a, a German flight and landed in Mogadishu. 
very similar to Seven Days in Tebby, but instead of uh, is, is instead of Israel, it dealt more with Germany. Um, but yeah, it, it, that was that's constantly being showcased in the news to give you a sense of time. This is happening in October 1977 in Germany. This is giving you direct correlation to the time period and the setting. And, you know, it deals with crossing the border from east to west Berlin. And it, it deals with, you know, like there are German punks being harassed by police. And there are r- demonstrations and riots in the streets. It has a much more comprehensive visualization of, of Germany, of 1977 Berlin than the original movie did. Because, the par- because that literally could have taken place anywhere. They had no sense of idea of where it was in space and time. It just literally could have taken place anywhere. Whereas this was strictly 70s Berlin. At least as far as I know of it. I, I, maybe there are, uh, if you're a German listener or if you've been to, you know, if you're familiar with, you know, that sort of late Cold War Berlin, you know, feel free to contradict if I, feel free to like correct me if I've misspoken. But it very much is establishing that this is 1977 Specifically, East Berlin. Um, the only other thing I would say is that it's a bit drawn out. Like, the original movie was a tight 90 minutes. You know, I think it was a 98 minutes specifically. Uh, hour 38 or something like that. And this movie, the remake, is almost two and a half hours long. I feel it's two hours, 20 minutes long. I feel like that last, I feel like 20 minutes could easily be cut from this. It could be a, 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 a solid two hour movie. This did not need to be almost two and a half hours long. It's good. It definitely has its artistic flourishes to it. It's not, I think that's the nice thing is that by going from Jalo B movie stylist decor to more art house, it definitely keeps that sort of visual flair to it. Like the gore in this movie is definitely visually stunning and well executed. That's the other thing too. You know, not obvious. Not only obviously, you know, showcased by Tilda Swinton's. Like, I literally did not recognize her as the Doctor in this movie. Uh, but on top of that, you also have like these amazing physical affectations and special effects done by practical makeup for like dead bodies and rotting corpses and all kinds of you know disfigurements and. Get, you know, like, gore and viscera. And it's... Whoever the makeup people on this movie are, they're amazing. They're excellent. They should work in every horror movie. Because they're clearly amazing at their craft. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it, I didn't mind... The two and a half hours didn't drag a lot. There are some points where it did kind of drag. So, I mean, like... Cutting, you could easily kind of pare this down to maybe like two hours and ten minutes, maybe you know a little a little over two hours. This did not need to go on for almost two and a half hours, but at the same time, I didn't mind it as as well because it just it really is a a really stunning movie. You know, like why did he, I can see why people were raving about Guadagnino if he directed Call Me by Your Name as well as he did this remake. He clearly is a very talented director so he didn't have the sort of colorful flair of argento like it's not full-on like day glow neon colors like 70s giallo but he has a great he has a great eye for color coordination like like the whole outfits that the girls wear for their dance sequence that you see in the trailer is like 
almost like they're wrapped in red ribbons. And they feature um, uh, Dakota Johnson by as the as the center central character in the dance by painting her face white. So it's red with white makeup on her face. Like almost that's you know it's very like very much like almost a um what's her name uh, the girl who uh, Tilda, I swear Tilda Swinton worked with her already. Um, she did uh, Turn Off the Dark, uh, Across the Universe. Who is that? Who's that director? She's she's mainly known for live theater. Um, God, who was that? Julie Taymor. Like, there's a lot of aspect of this that that could you know that Julie Tame that you would see in a sort of Julie Taymor sort of theatrical film. You know, like a director who was more known for uh, live theater. And yeah, I mean, this really is a well-executed remake. Personally, I find it more enjoyable than the original. I feel like there's just more going on to it, and I'm, but that's more because I'm a story. I'm a story-centric viewer. I like story. To, story. I like to pay attention to the stories being told, and the visuals are are after are uh, you know are secondary. Here, the only thing keeping this from being one of my favorite of the year is that it's a bit drawn out and it kind of gets up its own ass at points. It gets very into that sort of almost pretentious level of art ha- that art house uh, cinema can get into. But for the most part, this is really well done. And I highly recommend you check out the remake if you get the chance. Uh, the original is good too. I watched it in Hoopla, uh, which I forgot to mention. Uh, if, you're, if you have a lot... All, all uh, watching movies isn't hard when you've got a library card. Just use Hoopla. This this episode is not sponsored by Hoopla, um, but yeah, if I I just use my lo, my local library card to gain access to Hoopla, and I'm able to download and and stream uh, the original Suspiria, but plus there's various other stream. You know, so if you want if you want a essentially free uh, streaming service made available to you as a sort of backup to um, Netflix, Hulu, and all the other ones. Hoopla is literally free. All it, all you need to do is have a library card to access it. That's it. That is literally it. Go go support Hoopla. It's a it's an excellent service because plus it's not only video. It's uh, audio books, um, ebooks. It's a, a complete digital library at your fingertips. I know I'm turning this into an ad for Hoopla, but I'm telling you, it is that good. I was an overdrive guy for the longest time. Now I have access to Hoopla. So, hey, my access to the library has doubled. Go support your local libraries. They're amazing. Anyway, uh, Suspiria. Uh, original is decent, good. You know, it's not a bad movie. just not my thing. The remake, I really enjoyed. And I highly recommend you get the chance to check it. You know, if it's, if it's playing near you, take the time. It, it's going to eat about three hours of your day. So, have that time made available to you. But... I don't think you'll. I don't think you'll be disappointed, but that's just me. I feel pretty good about my writing. I'm worried the critics are going to call you a male fantasy figure. Ah, oh, got it. Likes to be watched. I love to be watched. I'm sorry. I was just being jealous. I don't know who she's done to me. 
Shall we say eight? Last one this week is one that was delayed release by three years because of legal issues. And that is 2015's London Field. Now, the original book that this is based on seems to be really well praised. So I can't speak for you know, this as an adaptation. I'll just say this. The studios behind this completely just botched the whole thing. Apparently, this all stemmed, the, the, the delayed release stemmed from the fact that the initial lawsuit came from the director, um, Martin Cullen, I believe, or something Cullen. Um, he, let me actually pull up his name so I can get this right. But basically, the director was, uh, made the, you know, helped make the film and then was denied his wages. Matthew Cullen. And um, he's best known for doing the visual effects on Pacific Rim. He directed uh, the Chained to the Rhythm music video for Katy Perry, which was at the time of, of, of working on this movie. And they actually argued in the... Like, he also... Okay, no, he also did uh, Dark Horse, which may be the... Basically, he's mostly directed... Uh, Katy Perry music videos. He's a music video director. Like his first one was Beck's Girl music video, um, and then he did Modest Mouse, Adele's Chasing Pavements, Weezer's Pork and Beans, Boom Boom Pow for the Black Eyed Peas, Know Your Enemy by Green Day, and then his a bunch of Katy Perry, California Girls, Dark Horse, and then Chain to the Rhythm. He also did Kygo and Ellie Goulding's First Time. So he's mainly a music video director. And so he tried to break into mainstream filmmaking with London Fields, and he was denied his wages and denied Final Cut, and so he sued the studio for that, and they claimed that, oh, you went off and made the Dark Horse music video, so you broke your contract, we don't have to pay you. And so that that lawsuit went on for year for several years, and on top of that... Uh, Amber Heard, the star of the movie, uh, the main, the femme fatale in the movie, she spoke out against it, I believe, at uh, Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF, um, or somewhere, and they sued her for, um, uh, forget, did I write down what the lawsuit was for? Um, they, apparently they fil- sued her. For not fulfilling her contract, her contractual obligations for like uh, voiceover and stuff, and she countersued them for breaching her nudity clause in you know by by you know showing more scenes of her body double naked than is allowable in her contract. So this movie was this movie took three years to finally get released because of all of the lawsuits. Being not only raised by the stu- by the producers, but also leveled at the producers by the film by the director and one of and its star. And in the time since the movie was made, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp had a very public falling out with revelations that Amber Heard was mainly emotionally, but I believe also physically abused by Johnny Depp. And uh, and so you have a movie where they actually have romantic interactions while both of them also have big blockbusters on the horizon and they had a public falling out as part as a sort of almost tie-in or precursor to the Me Too movement. 
So, I mean, this is in very poor taste to release to wide audiences. And yet, apparently, there's actually a Guardian article. I'll pull it up. Like, the, one of the first things you see um, when you look up uh, London Fields on Google is the guard, there is the Guardian article... At least it wasn't... Lo- Here it is. Uh, it was on uh, mobile, the initial article that came up. Uh, in the Guardian... Uh, dot com, on Guardian.com, the uh, British uh, newspaper, uh, it was an editorial written by Stuart Heritage. And, appara- and he basically breaks down that the only reason this movie got released at all was because of a Surrey-based solvency firm. Insolvency? Insolvency firm. Insolvency is basically a means of paying back bankruptcy. So this movie only got released as a means to pay back, you know, kind of pay off debt incurred by the studios. That is literally the only... I've been using the term literally a lot tonight. That is, in fact, the only reason this movie got released at all was because a Surrey-based insolvency firm, accountants, accountants are the only reason this movie got released at all. And they're the only people who actually released a glowing uh, statement on the movie's release. Like, Amber Heard and all of them have to do the rounds now that it's actually out. But it... <laughs> there's the only people who wrote anything good about the movie is the insolvency firm that got it to get got it released in the first place. West Byfleet based insolvency practitioners Gibson Hewitt. So yeah, Surrey, England, a an, an accounting agency that deals with that deals with that with helping companies overcome debt incurred incurred through insolvency or I think insolvency is a, is a, is the practice of, 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 uh, resolving debt, uh, resolving bankruptcy. I'm not sure this is all, this is technically British, um, bankruptcy law. And so a British firm helped that, that deals with insolvency and, you know, resolving bankruptcy is the only reason this movie actually got released at all. There's no other reason. Nobody wanted to see this movie. The directors, directors, director didn't like it. Like stars definitely didn't like. Like Amber Heard is seen on screen kissing the kissing the man she just had. To, she just openly admitted abused her for years, and it's on screen for everyone to watch. Oh, and of course, that's all the bad stuff behind the scenes. On top of that. This movie just plain sucks. According to Matthew Cullen, it's because he was denied Final Cut. It's hard to say whether or not his Final Cut would have been any better, but what we did get was absolutely unwatchable. This is legit one of the worst of the year. Of the, like, here's the thing. I didn't see the one with Jim Carrey. That's the other um, uh, 0% Rotten Tomatoes score this year. The first one was Gotti, which I think is a bit overplayed. That's like a... 10% 10% at the at the least. I don't think it's a full 0%. I think that one's more incurred by the fact that it was co-distributed by MoviePass trying to go full Netflix. 
and it it all. I mean, it didn't help that it was a bad movie, but I think they I think they took it. I think people who are more in the know kind of saw kind of want to kind of you know derided it for behind the scenes practices more so than the quality of the film itself. But yeah, it's not a good movie. This one is very much 0%. There is no... I mean, there's not only the behind-the-scenes stuff that went on, the fact that it's only gotten released as a part of uh, bankruptcy negotiation, you know, trying to trying to clear up bankruptcy. That's the only... Like, this is basically trying to recoup losses by the producers. And not only that, it, it, it's a terrible neo-noir film. Like, here's the thing. The movie is about an author who... Gets who starts to write his, his no what is his next great novel after struggling to get one finished for so many years. He's played by Billy Bob Thornton, and he and he gets inspiration after meeting a femme fatale played by Amber Heard, who I think has, looks like a young Alicia Silverstone in this personally. Um, and she is kind of leading on these two men played by Theo James. And Jim Sturgis. Jim Sturgis is full on chewing up the scenery every scene he's in. He's he's essentially pulled straight out of a '90s Guy Ritchie movie for all intents and purposes. And she's leading these two men on. And she told Billy Bob Thornton that in in a week's time or in like this many days' time, I'm going to die, and I know who my killer is. And and he's writing the story based on that. And it has a very stranger than fiction sort of appeal to it. The idea of the, the, um, the sort of dissolute, you know, like the like removing that fourth wall between realities. Like what's in what's in the writer's head versus what's reality. It plays around with that, but not very well. In fact, by the end of the movie, it perf- it, it reveals just what's really going on and how much of it actually happened. And it's not very good. It's just really, it's it's not. Very, and not only that, it, it the whole neo noir. Billy Bob Thornton is completely phoning it in. He does not want to be here right now. That's his whole performance in this movie. Is that I really don't want to be here right now, man. It's a paycheck. It's a paycheck. Think of the money. Think of the money. He gets to make out with Amber Heard, and he could not care less. It is like. I, I don't know if I'm misusing that. Is it could care less or could not care less? I think it's could not. I believe it's could not. Because if you could care less, you would. Um, so yeah. Basically, he doesn't care that he's getting to make out with one of the hottest actresses currently working. And he he's just, does, he's just, ready, to, he's just ready to go home. He just can't wait for the workday to be over. He's just, whatever, bare minimum, even during the like really climactic, like, thrilling scenes in the movie he's just like man i could be doing anything else right now and instead i'm here doing this stupid movie Ugh. that's his whole performance in this movie and yeah like johnny depp's in this as some sort of british underground gangster his whole character is never really established all that well jim sturgis is some sort of darts wannabe champion uh, Theo James is this uh, posh, like executive type who is ch- cheating on his wife with Amber Heard and apparently ruins his life by telling her to, by her telling him 
to admit to his to his wife that he was cheating on her. His wife played by Jamie Alexander. Like this, this is some solid acting actors in this movie. Jamie Alexander is good. Cara Delevingne is um, Jim Sturgis's wife and baby mama. And Amber Heard is solid. Billy Bob Thornton's usually good. Jim Sturgis is good. Theo James can be good. He hasn't been good in anything I've seen him in since uh, Hunger Games. But yeah, it it is. This is such a like, and of course, not only it starts off as a really bad Netflix quality, like made for Netflix, made for not even made for Netflix. Netflix can get some like AMC grade performances from people. This is more like made for Redbox. You know that it looks like it was made like directly recorded to the DVD they're going to mass produce and put on Walmart dollar bin shelves. You know. And, you know, this is direct going directly to the dollar store. It is that cheap looking. And the so the writing starts off basic, really basic wannabe neo-noir. Thinks it's, the, thinks it's so intellectual and has no idea what it's talking about. And then it just goes full of like, I don't, I don't know, man, just whatever. Like, the whole point of the movie deals with London during a riot... And that's never really established. It's trying to set up the fact that, oh, there are these riots going on. But it only comes up in certain points. And it never plays into the plot of the movie. Like, at least in Suspiria, when they bring up the demonstrations and the political activism, that plays into the plot of the movie in points. You know, like, there's definitely reasons for to bring those things up in the movie. There's no reason to bring them up in this movie. They're not actual riots. They don't have anything to do with the plot. It's only brought up randomly, so there's no... So, what is the point of establishing that there are riots going on in London? There are no... There is no point. So, yeah, this whole movie is... And then, of course, the very end is bafflingly bad. Like, it, it ends on a decent note, and then the epilogue just decides, you know what? Screw you. Yeah, we don't care. Well, we'll, we're we're just going to do a big F you to the audience because we don't care. We don't care what you think. Whatever, man. We do what we want. And then the whole, like, the the, the epilogue just undermines everything the movie was working towards. And it didn't make any damn sense why they did it either. So, uh, just everything about this movie is baffling. Maybe the book's good. I have no idea. The movie, number one, is predictable. Number two, like, if you want to see my thought process sitting through this movie, I was alone in the theater, thankfully. Nobody's seeing this. And had I did a full-on Twitter munch-along as I was watching it, you get to see my entire thought process while watching this movie if you go to my Twitter, at CornJunkiePod, and follow the hashtag munch-along for London Fields. It is genuinely insane to think that this was going to be... Like, this was clearly not good. And Cullen's trying to pass it off as the producers. I have no idea if it was going to be any good to begin with. What his final cut was going to look like. If the script, which was co-written by the author of the book, was any good to begin with. How much they deviated from that script. Who knows? This whole... The whole production was mishandled by everybody, by the producers, that there's no guarantee that anything about this, about this movie was going to be salvageable to begin with. So, 
If you want to see genuinely one of the worst movies of the year that only got released to try and recoup losses by the by the producers thanks to a British-based insolvency firm, check out London Fields. Probably coming to Amazon near you. Oy. Okay, we ran a bit long, but I don't think it's long enough to be a full-on super mega awesome movie review madness. I feel like I save those for anything that's over five and... Aside from the Suspiria original, we only we just barely made five this weekend for new releases. So I think I'm just going to cut right here. When we come back, I'm going to have a quick discussion about archetypes and tropes and kind of the stuff that ties into the releases this week. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together, we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us, Living in the Stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks. So as I alluded to, uh, especially during the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody uh, review, the, story, the the topic I wanted to discuss this week real quick was uh, tropes and archetypes. Specifically, when do you follow... Like, here's the thing. No matter what... I'm in the middle of NaNoWriMo as I am recording this. Uh, National Novel Writing Month. And one of my biggest deals as a writer initially was I would come up with these ideas... But as I tried to flesh them out, I would worry that, is that too much? Like, this already... Like, here's the thing. I love coming up with superhero stuff. I'm a big fan of the superhero genre. Of the superhero sort of mythos mythos that uh, Marvel and DC have come up with. And a lot of my superhero stuff essentially stemmed from the fact that I was cribbing from pre-existing characters. So, at what point is... Are you following archetypes... Versus, are you full on stealing from another from another uh, intellectual property? And so that ties into the fact that as a creative writer, you can't avoid tropes and you can't avoid archetypes. They exist. They're in everything. Even the most non traditional story that you can think of, the most indie art house sort of. Balls to the wall, in like trash humpers by what's his name? Who's the guy? Uh, I think he just had a thing with A24, or uh, they're gonna release his next movie, uh, Harmony Kareen. There it is, I knew it was gonna come to me. Uh, even the most inane, sort of very un you know, you know, unstory, unwritten level of. Film, like film that essentially was designed not to have a story, can still feature archetypes, tropes. The, that's the thing. We act like tropes and archetypes is a negative. It's not. It's neutral. There can be negative tropes and there can be negative archetypes, but the term itself is neutral. It is 
specifically does like any writer will tell you this. It is just the inherent sort of shorthand that writers use in order to portray certain personalities, certain story elements, certain uh, you know dramatic elements. Like that's a thing. Every story has tropes. Every character is based on some archetype, whether it's um, you know the he- the hero archetype, the mythical hero archetype sort of thing, the the villain archetype, the femme fatale that I mentioned in London Fields, the the um, sort of uh, writer on the downward spiral uh, is that the sort of egoti- you know the sort of egotistical flamboyant gay for Freddie Mercury and Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, uh, I'm trying to think in um, of the uh, mythical sort of villainess in uh, uh, for like the Tilda Swinton character Madame Blanc uh, in Suspiria. If you, I'm trying to think um, the rat, you know, sort of the ratchet sister for uh, t- for uh, Tiffany Haddish and Nobody's Fool. The uh, high, you know, the the high pay the high paid executive businesswoman who is super serious and ha- you know is a, needs to learn to accept more humanity and learn to uh be be more human versus ha- having this sort of high-minded intellectualized version of herself that Tika Sumter nobody's fool um the sort of uh you know, uh checkered past ex-con um nice guy but who's turned his life around Character that's the love interest, Omari Hardwick, in Nobody's Fool. So I mean, I could break down literally every movie using tropes and archetypes. I talked mainly about archetypes, but you know, Nobody's Fool features a lot of Tyler Perry tropes. The only thing it didn't have was church, but like the stuck-up uh, executive type who needs to learn some humanity and needs to get over themselves. As well as the nice guy who has a checkered past but has turned his life around and is doing good things. Um, the sort of comedic mother's character. Like, it's not Medea. Medea tends to fill that role in those movies. But here, the, but Nobody's Fool has Will Be Goldberg being the sort of uh, comedic relief mother character who um, kind of dispenses wisdom for the main character. Uh, if you check. Uh, follow the tropes in uh, Nutcracker. It's essentially Alice in Wonderland. Uh, girl follow. Girl falls down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Literally, she goes and goes in through a ma- for, through a log. And apparently, is in the room in the house. I forgot to mention this. It's it, one of the rooms in the house. Apparently, goes directly into this magical realm, but nobody else goes in it. I guess because even though it's a mansion, nobody goes in that room enough to, for people to realize. Oh, that's a magical realm. We could all just go in there. Hey, everybody, like, you could literally just sell tickets like, hey, you want to go to a fantasy realm? Here, go this way. I don't know. Um, but yeah, girl goes down the rabbit hole, uh, fish out of water, has to learn the uh, learn the ins and outs of this magical realm. Um, things aren't as they appear. Uh, the enemy out of my enemy sort of thing. Uh, you know, don't trust, don't judge based on appearances. Um uh, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, um, there's th- you know themes of like law. The the whole thing deals with is basically um, 
Clara dealing with the loss of her mother finally through a magical adventure, which that's not a bad thing. That most adventure magical adventures, especially those that are in another world, are usually done to deal with some personal like the never ending story is um I believe it's 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 that kid dealing with the loss of his mother. And even like it all leads up to the kid giving the um giving the princess his mother's name. So I mean the whole story is his escapist fantasy to to um at least the movie version the book's probably different but the movie version has him going through this escapist fantasy in order to deal with the loss of his mother. And like I'm trying to think what else. Uh Alice, Alice in Wonderland is more um it's not so much defined by that but I mean more interpretations of Alice in Wonderland have her overcoming uh childhood um, sort of brattishness, brattiness, sort of the idea that uh, she's overcoming her in- immaturity by going through this adventure and realizing that she needs to grow up a little. And that's a lot of Alice in Wonderland style adventures is that, like even the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland, it was her um, coming to terms with uh, taking more of a role in her life. A, you know, a more prominent role in her own life and overcoming these sort of Victorian era limitations put upon her. It's not realistic, but that's the, that was the theme of the story. Um, so, yeah, so, so, I mean, the tropes exist. They're not bad. The problem is there are points where writers will strict, will stick, will stick directly to the trope as we know it but never expand on it, never provide uh, a uniqueness to them. So, for Bohemian Rhapsody, let's take a look at it. Let's let's, let's break it down, compare it to a fictional uh, rock star storyline. Uh, so we'll compare Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born to Bohemian Rhapsody, since they're this close together, and they're basically telling the, uh, the similar rise to stardom, sort of, you know, rock star musical biopic essentially although one's real one's fictional whereas the freddie mercury one has him being flamboyantly gay and over and completely disregarding uh the actual events of queen in order to tell the rise to stardom ego trip gone wrong fall breakup you know re- reunion final co- final concert moment the you take a look at A Star Is Born, which does follow the exact art, the that exact structure of the other A Star Is Born movies, but what it provides differently is well, for one thing, and it takes more influence from Lady Gaga's personal life. The whole like there's a whole running thing where she runs her finger down her nose, like because you know, like the the actual Stephanie Germanata was told by producers that, oh, you're going to have to do a nose job or something. We can't sell you with your, fa- with your face looking like that. And so they included that in the movie as a sort of personalization of the story. Made it more personal to Lady Gaga and also provided, you know, this 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 idea that she's overcoming the um, this sort of superficiality of the business by being more creative and artistically driven and it's because she starts off in folk rock essentially that she gets discovered and turned into a pop star 
and it's becoming a pop star that she starts to lose a bit of herself by going so superficial. But at the same time, it's Lady Gaga. She's not, I mean, Lady Gaga writing the music. So she's still a song. Those elements of the character are still have those elements of Gaga where she is writing fluffy pop music, but it's still not bad. It's not the worst lyrics you've ever heard. And it's still genuinely good music. And so it, Part of so you've got all so you've got some of the more songwriter stuff that that uh, the character plays, and then she goes full on pop diva, and initially um, Bradley Cooper's character is is supportive of her. Like there's a bit where she's like, "Oh man, I can't do that. I gotta do stuff for the label, and I gotta promote the album, and I gotta get back in the studio." And he's like, "Listen, you listen to yourself," and sort of reminding her that, "Hey." Remember when you said you weren't you didn't want to sing on my stage? You remember when you said you could never get into the business? Now you're te- now you you remember you remember that when you listen to yourself talk about all the stuff you got to do for the label and for the album, you made it. You know, sort of like hey, just remember you made it. And but eventually he gets to the point where it's like he him being the very authentically driven singer songwriter uh, kind of musician, seeing her go pop drives him to kind of resent her because she's selling he sees her as selling out but at the same time she she recognizes that it was because of him that she's where she's at but suffice to say that they're following the storyline of all the others of stars born movies but they're adding in more elements from other people like that's the other thing is that while while uh, Bradley Cooper's character is on a downward is on a downward trend, he's never a has been. He doesn't become a has been until halfway through the movie. At the very beginning of the movie, he's singing sold out shows. He's singing sold out open concert venue, open air concert venues. Dude is might as well be playing like festivals. He is still on top of the world as a musician. It isn't until. He begins. He begins to lose control due to alcoholism, and he also begins to finally lose his hearing because he was never really taking. Because number one, he uh, had some accidents growing up, and number two, yeah, I think he had like a brain injury—not a brain injury, but like a head injury growing up—and it kind of damaged his hearing initially. And then performing all that loud music without any protection uh, further damaged his hearing to almost irreparable point. And it, and so the downward trend is more of a physical deterioration more so than oh he's just a has-been which is one of the biggest changes and the biggest improvements from the other versions of a star is born now you compare that to bohemian rhapsody where if you've seen if you've seen like let's compare bohemian rhapsody to the parody walk hard walk hard features parodies of the beatles of specifically johnny cash as well as Ray and the whole structure of the rise to stardom, fall from grace, you know, return to prominence by the end. And, you know, the final concert sort of thing. And literally, I say that a lot this episode. I'm, I'm very literal this episode. Uh, but, yeah, there's a reason that people were bringing up Walk Hard in relation to Bohemian Rhapsody. The structure is 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 pretty much the same as Walk Hard. So the story of Queen is it's doubtful that it followed that specific of the structure 
that was so easily parodied by by the people who made Walk Hard. So the fact that you're sticking that close to the tropes, to the structure of the musical biopic, that you're basically taking the structure that was made fun of a decade ago and saying that's exactly how we're going to make our movie, that's lazy. That feels lazy. So when you follow tropes too closely, you begin to lose your own sense of identity. And so Bohemian Rhapsody's only sense of identity is it plays queen music. And Freddie's gay. Hey guy, did you know Freddie's gay? And that's the other thing. It cuts out one of the most prominent relationships in his life until the very end. Why couldn't we see more? The only reason they did that is so he could re- he could come to the realization that he needs a real friend. And so he gets Jim Hutton and they finally start going out. And he goes and he introduces Jim to his family on the day of the Live Aid concert. Like, it is so perfectly precise that there's no way that it, that actually happened. And just, you know, heaven forbid we try to tell a more a more realistic life story of the band Queen. No, we gotta follow the formula. And I mean, hell, it worked. It worked. Everyone loved it. I, I'm already. I already saw things that said it was a top. A top it was top, a top of the box office. It knocked Halloween out of the top slot. So people love it. But once again, entertainment value is different from creative, you know, integrity. And and somebody who critiques. The, the process that goes into making a movie and the final product that comes out of it, I can't help but criticize Bohemian Rhapsody for staying so... for almost foregoing the creativity that Queen had by making such a by-the-numbers biopic. And I think that's a, one of a lot... That's the reason so many people weren't... Uh, were, that's why that's why it had a rotten it had a rotten score for for a while there. I don't know if it's still at a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that that matters, but the reason more critic it's not getting so well reviewed by critics, but audiences love it is because audiences are going for Queen. They don't care if it's true or not. They're going for the Queen music essentially. They're going to a Queen concert for all intents and purposes. Whereas critics and you know reviewers when they watch the movie, they're like. Well, I want a story. I want some. I want to hear about the actual queen. I want if I know the actual queen story, and you're differentiating from it in stupid ways. I'm going to point that out. And so, when you look at it closely, it starts to fall apart. But for people who just came for Queen, they're getting exactly what they wanted. So I can't say that you're wrong for enjoying this movie. I'm not going to tell my nephew that he's wrong for enjoying this movie because he's not wrong. You can enjoy the movie all he wants, but essentially, if you this if that's all you wanted, just. You know, go watch the Live Aid concert. Go watch it. They have almost all of the Queen music videos up on YouTube on their official channel. You can go watch their old music videos. You can listen to their old albums. They're all everywhere. So, I mean, you can listen to the Queen music. You don't need a, a, a bad movie to just listen to Queen music. And there's just so much they admitted, they omitted from the storyline that could have been cool. Or they play under pressure, but they never actually show Freddie Mercury and... Um, David Bowie actually meeting to perform the song or write the song. That would have been cool. And yet they leave that part out. And I think that's kind of showcasing what's missing from the movie. It's that Queen did so many interesting and cool things, but all they cared about was just doing it by the numbers. 
And that's why it's not as good as it should have been. And people are disappointed in it. That's why people are praising the movie. It's because it does what it's it does what it's expected to do, not what it should have done, which is defy expectations. That's what Queen does. Queen defies your expectations. Queen defies your formula. Queen is not a formulaic band. This move, the movie, however, is completely paint by numbers, and that's sad. All right, I think that kind of breaks down. I don't want to go too much longer, but suffice to say that you can, you you have to utilize tropes. I'm, but I mentioned I'm doing NaNoWriMo now. I'm utilizing the tropes and the archetypes of the genre I'm currently writing in. I'll reveal more about it once the book's actually done. But I have to use tropes. They exist. They're inherent within the creative process. You can't write a story that does not feature tropes and archetypes. They will always be there. It's how you use them, how you personalize them, what you do with them that matters. And the only that's why the only thing this weekend that really did anything with the tropes, with the archetypes, with the created with the with with the creative process that defied what is expected of it this weekend? It's Suspiria. Suspiria is my pick of the week. I think it just can, I I do need to do that, but I think I need to do that before the end, before the break, every episode, or before, or if it's uh, super mega awesome, before uh, before I go into the next. One. I'll find a point. Uh, basically, when I'm done with the reviews, to, to to list my pick of the week, and my pick of the week is Suspiria. I highly recommend you check it out. It is the most creative. It is the best made movie this week. Wide release? Nobody's Fool made me laugh the most. It was the most entertainment value I got of a wide release. Suspiria is very limited, sadly. But it is my pick of the week of what I've reviewed this week. So, there you have it. Quick, dis- I'll probably go into more in-depth on another episode where I don't have as much to talk about. Because I do want to try and keep this under two hours. So, we'll keep things moving uh, with the box office report. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right. This weekend, it it uh, went about as well as you... Yeah, it, went, uh, it went about as you'd think it would. Um, we did see some big drops. Uh, mid-90s completely dropped out of the top ten. Uh, so did Night School. So did First Man. And The Hate You Give dropped out of the top seven. Both Hit First Man and The Hate You Give dropped out of the top seven. Hate You Give is just barely clinging to the top to number ten. And Hunter Killer dropped from five to nine. Goosebumps two, four to eight. And then uh, we actually saw a rise. So starting at number seven this weekend, Smallfoot rose from number eight to number seven, oddly enough, and brought in $3.8 million, bringing its domestic total up to 77.4 million and a worldwide total of two of 192 192.6 million. So actually I think that's pretty decent. I think I, I think it, it at least made back its budget. So that's good news for Warner Brothers. The long game it's playing the long game so it's making back the money in the long run especially from the foreign market. So they're so at least their first non-Lego um, animated movie is a success. And so, you know, a minor success, not a major success, but it 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 made back its money for the most part. So that's good for it. 
Uh, I doubt we'll see like a small foot. Maybe we'll see a small foot like Netflix series or something, or um, maybe Cartoon Network series or something. I doubt. I don't. I don't think we're going to see more from this franchise specifically, but but at least it at least it didn't completely bomb like I thought it was going to. Dropping down from number three to number six is Venom, which brought in seven point eight million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to one hundred ninety eight million. And it's foreign, and combined with the foreign total, five hundred and forty-one million dollars, half a billion dollars. People sure love them some venom. Once again, the audience audiences aren't the most discerning of taste. They, they as long as they get what what they're looking for out of a movie, they don't care about quality. I mean, audiences are not good at quality control. I'm just saying. That's why the I mean, look at the look at the look at Michael Bay's Transformers series. Audiences loved it. Does not make it good. Anyway, uh, dropping down from the number... This is a big drop. From number one to number five, Halloween. Now that the Halloween season is over, people are done seeing Halloween. Brought in $11 million this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to 150.4. And, it, and combined with a world, foreign total, a global gross of $229.6 million. All on a $10 million budget. Blumhouse dominated this 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 October, and I'm very I'll, I I think that model is going to even if it, they themselves don't uh don't gain the rights to the old slashers if we're gonna see any more uh slasher remakes a la Platinum Dudes in the mid two thousands then we're they're probably going to follow the Blumhouse model because that's what worked for them uh, dropping from number two to number four uh, the only one really holding on this weekend is A Star Is Born. Which brought in eleven million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to one hundred and sixty-five point six million, and a worldwide gross so far of two hundred and ninety-three point nine million dollars. That's really good business for Bradley Cooper's debut. People are loving this movie. That's the that's the big thing. If you can get repeat viewership, that's what gets you the big. That's what gets you the big money. That's what did. That's what worked for Halloween. That's what's working for A Star Is Born. People are coming back, and so our top three are actually uh, all new releases. The top three this weekend are all the brand new releases. So premiering at number three this weekend is Nobody's Fool, which brought in fourteen million dollars, and not a whole lot to add from the foreign markets. So opening weekend gross was fourteen point two million dollars. On a $19 million budget. So it didn't make back its money the first weekend. But I get the feeling that people are going to go back and support this movie. So I think it's going to make back its money in the long run. And Tyler Perry at least is going to make back the money in DVD sales. So, he, you know, he once again, keep the budget low enough. And as long as enough people see it, you can make back that money no problem. So I have no, I'm not worried about this for right now. We'll see if it has a major drop off uh, after this weekend. At number two is The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which premiered at $20 million this weekend and uh, combined with the foreign markets made a opening uh, gross of $58.5 million. No word on its budget from Box Office Mojo. So let's take a look at Wikipedia. Ooh... 120 to 133 million dollars and it's only made back half that and i don't i'm very curious to see so that means this needs to make 200 million dollars to break even 
We'll see if it kicks up any... If We'll see if it's able to make it through to the Christmas. But I think it's already going to be trampled by Wreck-It Ralph 2 in a couple of weeks. We'll see. And premiering at number one this weekend, just dominating the box office, is Bohemian Rhapsody, which brought in $50 million domestically, combined with a foreign gross... It's foreign gross... It's worldwide opening weekend total is $141.7 million. Already doubled its money. Broke even its opening weekend. It's no wonder. People love Queen. Even if it's not a great movie, it still made back its money. It still, you know, it still gave people exactly what they wanted, which was Queen. People are, people were starving for Queen, and this this was like giving them dirty water. They were thirsty, but at least it was something. Oh, well. So that was box office mojo. So at that that literally was box office mojo. That was what we're using to measure the box office this weekend. But that was this weekend's box office. And as we as we're done, since we're done with this weekend, let's take a look ahead forward in the trailer talk segment. Coming this summer. It's trailer talk. Read it all. Starts Friday. We're about two weeks out from Thanksgiving, so we're not gonna see. We're gonna start to see some more of the family friendly fair come out come out for the holidays. And to start things off, our big release for next weekend is Illuminations: The Grinch. Hi, uh, All right. Um, let's take a look at the final trailer for the next Doctor Seuss adaptation, brought to us by Illumination. Uh, still running the minions into the ground. It's never too early to be annoyed by Christmas. You're a mean one, mister. Get it? Cause it's the song. From the creators of Despicable Me, The Secret Life of Pets, and Sing. The cookie. This oh, great. There's a secondary sidekick animal, because of course there is. Why? 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 Damn it, Illumination. Why do you have to suck at this? The hell? This November. If I'm gonna become Santa, then I need to get into character. It's go time. Yes, that's exactly what we needed. Grinch butt. Why do why do why do why does the Grinch always have to have butt centric stuff? Both the Rod and Howard version and this one have stuff dealing with the Grinch's butt. What the hell? Man, I thought Tyler Crater was supposed to be good. What's he doing with this doing generic kids rap? Max? Yes! Max! 
know the rules. You sleep in your bed, and I sleep in. What's with the yak? Did you teach him? Why did why why the yak? Why the yak? We didn't need the yak. What is this ad? We need to up the cute animal quotient. We literally. Oh God! It's I hate it. Can we just not? Can we just not with this? Ugh. Ugh. I don't know. So yeah, I have to deal with that this weekend. I, I'm, I'm sure that's one, that one's going to top Bohemian Rhapsody because I don't know how many repeat viewers that's going to get. But the families are all going to line up for the Grinch. Oh well. Next up, uh, the somewhat sequel reboot that they're doing for... Uh, Girl with Dragon Tattoo, uh, by adapting the fourth book in the series, the first one post Stieg Larsson's death, uh, well, suicide, technically, uh, but yeah, the post hit, post, um, posture, you know, the first one not written by him, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Let's take a look at the, at the last trailer for this one. I'll say this Claire Foy is a decent Lisbeth Salander. I would have preferred they keep on Rooney Mara. I'm not sure why. I guess they figured she was too old. Or they wanted to redo it or something. But... Claire Foy does alright. I mean, she, she's a bit too pretty. Because I always try to make uh, Elizabeth Salander be sort of like off-putting. Like, not conventionally attractive. That's what uh, Numi Rapace played it as neat and Rooney Mara went for. Claire Foy's still kind of, like, conventionally attractive. What am I looking for? I realize too late. But, she, you know, she makes up for it by being, you know, a phenomenal actress. Please, help me. Someone set me up. I need your help. What's that? That's what I want to know. No idea how good the book is, but the movie looks decent. Based on the international bestseller. Every single one leads back to one place. Home. For 16 years, I've imagined this moment. Just put Salanda. Someone always has to carry the pain. Now it's your turn, sister. I feel like they shouldn't have given that away in the trailer. But, you know, trailers are always bad at keeping secrets. They always like to give away big twists because they think, well, if we give it away, then people will be like, oh, how did this fit in? Yeah, Golden Globe winner Claire Foy. was you who lit the match. What, you thought she didn't have a plan? I gotta say that, I'm guessing that's part of the climax, that sniper. Um, so I'm interested to see how that turns out. A new dragon tattoo story. Uh, I would prefer, like it's called the Millennium Trilogy, so I, I would think it's the, I guess I know people, it's so weird. It's the Girl of the Dragon Tattoo, but the series is called the Millennium Trilogy. I don't know if it's called anything else because they've added more to it, but 
we'll see. I'm not familiar with the story, um, the, the novel. I know it's the first one not written by Stieg Lars, but we'll see. I'm not, I'm not familiar. I didn't watch the, uh, I watched the original Dragon Tattoo, uh, the Swedish one. And I watched the uh, remake with Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara. Um, I like both. I think they're both good. Uh, we'll see if this keeps it going. Because, uh, hey, if it brings it back and makes it make and gives us more in the storyline, then I'm cool with that. If it, I just want it to be good. The big thing I always want movies to be is good. I don't. I don't want. I never want a movie to be bad. But we'll see. All right. And the last one this weekend is essentially. Uh, Wolfenstein, for lack of a better description, it's Overlord from J. Brought to us by J.J. Abrams, and the guy who's supposed to be tapped to uh, direct the next Flash Gordon movie. Uh, but apparently, I just heard that today. So let's take a look at Overlord. Great trailer choice too. Uh, using uh, Hell's Bells by uh, ACDC. Anachronistic a bit. I'm guessing it's for the trailer, not for the movie, but it's a great song choice. Three months ago, I was cutting grass in my front yard. And the mailman shows up with a letter from the heart. Solid effects work for the most part. But I mean, that's J.J. Abrams. He's always had a good. Uh, he always puts the money into making decent effects. Ah, God, I love that song. Questions don't have good answers. From producer G.J. Abrams. There's a lot of soldiers out there. There's only four of us. Find out what's inside that compound. See, this one doesn't reveal too much about what's going on. We just know that it's Nazi experimentation. We don't see too much of the actual monsters that they're making. Experience chaos, fear, insanity, havoc, horror, evil, madness, terror, rage. Why two faces in this movie? Overlord. Yes, Overlord. Ah, uh, yeah. Can't wait. This one, I'm that one, I'm excited for. I really hope it it doesn't doesn't crap out on us. Because, um, yeah. This, I, I mean, hey, it's Wolfenstein for lack of a better description. It's just it's full on B movie Nazi exploitation, and it looks looks good visually and it could be a lot of it could be a straight up b-movie kind of fun i'm excited i really hope it's good so we'll see this coming weekend uh 
But, but yeah, it, that does it for this episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to, date, up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and listing us as one of your favorite pages. So you can always come back to us and check out all of our other fine programming. Uh, we'll, we're off for this week for Living in the Stacks, but I'll be... Um, well, actually, Diana will be uh, heading the next one about uh, the Alice Network, if you haven't heard. So stay tuned for that. And then Mike and I are going to, our, uh, our season two premiere of Maji Day is already up, uh, where I lead a discussion on the Amazon original series documental done by uh, uh, Mats- uh, the, Ma- the comedian Matsuhiro. Uh, I forget his first name, but uh, he's half of the uh, comedic duo Downtown, for those who are familiar with Japanese comedy. It's very, very funny. Uh, if you want to hear us talk about documental and Japanese comedy, you can do so on our season two premiere of Manji Day. And you can also check out all the stuff that Donna's doing over at Snarkcasts. I believe Vanessa's still running the... Um, you haven't been able to do more fan of the podcast episodes, sadly. But I believe she's still running uh, the, the podcast about her store over in uh, Las Vegas, Las Vegas Oddities. Uh, I think it's called Odd Vegas. I'm pretty sure, yeah, Odd Vegas. And um, yeah, so yeah. And if you yourself are a podcaster and would like to join our network, uh, you can do so. You can send all your uh, inquiries and uh, solicitations to gumbaketnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you and see if you're a good fit. Uh, but if you're listening to us on the go, you can do so uh, through all your various podcast providers um, iTunes, Google Play, um, Spreaker. So we're through iHeartRadio, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. I'm going to add us on Pod, I'm going to add Podbean. Uh, we haven't been, I haven't been plugging the Patreon as much. Patreon.com slash Popcorn Junkie. You can get access to uh, new original content uh, what, that includes uh, riff, riffs for um, movies like Ants and um, uh, what are some of the other ones? It's been so long since I've produced content for Patreon, I've completely forgotten uh, what movies I've done so far. So let's take a look at... Thankfully, I write, thankfully I write these notes down. So, Patreon episode. There we go. Uh, Jurassic Park 3, Towering Inferno, Never Say Never Again, The Tigger Movie, Fear.com, Up at Treasure Island. So, if you want to hear me do riffs on those movies, that's over on patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. Just donate at least a dollar per month and you can get access to those episodes. Plus, hear me try to make better movies out of Jurassic World, The Purge Election Year, Punisher 2004, Man of Steel, Alien vs. Predator, and Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That's all also on patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And I'm going to try adding a Podbean. So you can get so if you don't want to use Patreon specifically, uh, but you want to get access to extra content and help make more, you can do so by donating through Podbean pretty soon. I'll make the, a formal announcement through the Facebook page. Which, yeah, if you want to share, be sure to uh, give five-star rating and reviews and share the podcast with your friends. And you can do so through our social media. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where the main news comes out, new episode announcements, uh, you know, when I'm seeing a new release. I haven't been plugging Stardust as much. I'm hoping to get back into the groove of that. There's not a real great way to share Stardust directly to a Facebook page yet. I'm hoping they'll get that bug fixed soon. But um, you can also follow me on Twitter at, at uh, Corn Junkie Pod. Uh, I just did a much along I mentioned for London Fields. Plus, I do trailer talks before every new release. And you can also hear me just share other 
uh, reviewers and filmmakers and movie you know, movie stuff and talk to me directly through there. I did get, uh, you know, I had some, I did have a, a bad interaction with somebody who was a fan of the Harry Potter series saying that, I'm, you know, trying to ch- chastising me for not, um, for, for calling out uh, Crimes of Grindelwald. Basically, they're saying there is not what you're saying. Yeah, but, but you know, there's going to be this is this stuff that fans have wanted. And I'm like, okay, fine. Like, this, this must be how, like, people who hear, like, MCU fans or Star Wars fans be like, no, there's this minutia stuff that we didn't get to know before. Now we do, and it's, and it's important. And it's like, okay, God, nerd. I'm a nerd. And I have to go tell these people, like, okay, fine, nerd, whatever. Ay <laughs> vey. Anyway, uh, but yeah, if you want to interact with me online, uh, the most direct way is through Corn Junkie, at Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm not very active there, sadly. I don't have an idea of how to utilize the platform that well. Uh, but I am over on Stardust, and you can do so. You could hear my thoughts on the new releases before I, before the episode comes out. So you can get previews of my, of my review on Stardust by following Popcorn Junkie. And you can also follow cool people like the guys over at Double Toasted and uh, the Schmo Snow guys and uh, specifically the Internet's other John Bailey, the king of Stardust, as I like to call him, Epic Voice Guy. Yeah, the guy who does the Honest Trailer voice, he is the king of Stardust. There is no one better. I defy you to find me someone better than the Internet's other John Bailey at the, at, at, at just... Just dominating Stardust. But hey, you don't have to follow like uh, prominent reviewers. You can also follow random people. There are people who have their own independent YouTube channels. There are people who are just average moviegoers that love talking about movies. Stardust is a great app for people who basically want Vine, but for movie and TV and trailer reactions. So if you want an idea of what what people are thinking about a movie and you want to share your own thoughts, you can do so by joining Stardust. Follow me, a popcorn junkie. Follow Epic Voice Guy, follow, and then find find your own community of people on Stardust. We're, we're having a blast over here, or you should join us. And then I think that's about it. Uh, if there's anything else I missed, uh, anything else you want to add to the conversation, I'd love to hear some audience feedback. And, you know, if I've made any mistakes, uh, you can correct me. If you want, if you have any... Um, dissenting opinions and you you know, you like you know you liked the other stuff this weekend you liked bohemian rhapsody you liked uh the nutcracker in the foreign realms uh but or you hated the suspiria remake you know to, if you actually saw london fields and you liked it i would be very interested to hear what you liked about it so, yeah, that, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com and let me know in the message that you want the podcast, that you want your message read on the air and included your name. Because otherwise, I'll just say, I got a message from. Uh, I would, you know, so if you want to be included in the episode, let me know. But otherwise, I'll just, I'll just relay the message, paraphrase it, rather than uh, directly quote you. Just to be fair. And that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And I've been doing this whole episode with a stuffed up left nostril. Like, I'm just going to be upfront with you. I don't know what happened, but the left side of my nose is completely numb. And I... Ugh. I hate my sinuses. Mm-hmm.
theme song for Popcorn Junkies, Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. 